You're listening to How to Stan, the podcast all about both specific fandoms and fandom culture as a whole. For more information about the show and the other show that I do, 17 Karat K-Pop, visit 17karatkpop.weebly.com. You can also go to 17karatkpop.weebly.com backslash how to stand for more specific information about this podcast. Enjoy the show! You are listening to a series of How to Stand episodes called Betrayals. Betrayals will cover different stories of times when fans felt disillusioned with their favorite celebrities, whether it be realizing that their idol didn't actually sing their own songs, to realizing that a child prodigy was actually not the child prodigy the media had claimed she was, to times where an entirely fake persona was crafted by celebrities. How fans react to that and why they react that way will be explored through a lot of different contexts through each of these stories. Betrayals Episode 1, J.T. Leroy. Listener discretion is advised for this episode, where adult themes and situations will be discussed. Around the turn of the century, a 15-year-old blonde-haired, blue-eyed boy from West Virginia named J.T. Leroy took the literary world by storm. This boy really came onto the scene after reaching out to all sorts of famous people through fax machines and phone calls and emails, finding ways to get author feedback. And one famous author led to another, and the networking just spiraled from there, leading to so much critical acclaim of this boy's writing. He wrote a series of three gripping memoir-style stories. One was a short story collection that went off of his main first hit, Sarah, which came out in 1999. And by the age of 16, J.T. Leroy was published in Spin, Nerve, The New York Press, and several anthologies. By age 17, J.T. had already landed a book deal with Crown Publishing, and one of his novels, The Heart is Deceitful Above All Things, was going to be turned into a movie directed by Asia Argento after its release in 2001. By age 20, J.T.'s books were already published in 20 different languages, Among JT's celebrity fans were Rosario Dawson, Winona Ryder, Michael Stipe, Courtney Love, Carrie Fisher, Lou Reed, Debbie Harry, Nancy Sinatra, Madonna, Bono, and many, many more. JT even had a song written about a character from his book Sarah. Shirley Manson from the band Garbage wrote a song called Cherry Lips, which was all about the character from the book Sarah named Cherry Vanilla. Then eventually, JT started to be getting asked to even write stories for musicians to release in correlation with the release of new album press releases and things like that. People were just so amazed at the fact that this 15-year-old then and then eventually 20-year-old boy could write such impressive, moving writing and such raw emotion was conveyed through such mature language and context. These stories really told a very dark tale of this boy's sad childhood where essentially his memoirs talk about him getting pimped out by his mother as they traveled across the country. He also wrote about his struggles living with HIV and having addiction issues, suffering with homelessness at points in his life, and overall struggling with his identity and failing to feel like he fit in in society. And JT's stories didn't just naturally become more vulnerable and emotional and raw over time. They started out like that right off the bat, with stories like Viva Las Vegas, about a mom traveling through Vegas with her 10-year-old son, and then leaving him at a gas station, 
there's another story that starts off one of JT's books where the first scene is a mom and a, a baby, a biological mother and her baby being torn apart. People were very impressed by the fact that, especially because this was the 90s at the time, an author was being so vulnerable and open and honest about living with HIV, homelessness, and other issues that were deemed not prevalent in the public eye and super taboo to talk about, as they still are today, but even more so back then. JT did not just capture the love of celebrities, though. JT really developed a worldwide fan base who absolutely loved the books. They really resonated with people. They were a way where they felt like they were heard and seen and validated in terms of their feelings and situations in ways that they hadn't previously. It allowed readers to feel like they could open up to about dealing with those tough times in their lives, to say the least. And they really resonated with and felt like they knew JT. Even though JT never showed himself to the public, that was part of his understandable shyness, his awkwardness in public talking about these things. So he just vented through writing and made no public appearances. So fans still showed their loyalty to JT, though, by meeting up in person and having their own readings and events. And this continued until 2001 when JT finally did start showing himself at book signings and similar events to celebrate his work. Things really took a turn for the weird when two big investigations were published, one in New York Magazine and one in New York Times, that were from reporters who uncovered quite a shocking truth to say the least. JT Leroy never actually existed. It turns out that the person who wrote these books that allegedly from a 15-year-old boy's perspective was actually a 30-something-year-old mother from Brooklyn named Laura Albert. She went under this persona of JT, who is the JT who showed up at book signings and such. That was Savannah, Laura's boyfriend's half-sister. Savannah would dress up in a wig and sunglasses, and she took on the southern drawl that she had heard Laura using before, after hours of those phone calls with people who were under the impression over the phone that they were speaking to a boy with a southern accent. Savannah picked up on that accent and took on the disguises, and then whenever JT had to make a public appearance, then Savannah would do so for and say to be JT. Given all of the trauma that JT had experienced, his natural unwillingness to speak much in public was pretty much assumed to have been the case. People would have been more shocked if JT Leroy was the life of the party. The character could kind of stay pretty silent, and then when asked questions at press events and such about the stories, then Laura Albert would answer for JT. Laura Albert, at those public events, would take on an, another disguise and speak in a British accent suddenly, and then she had turned into Speedy, the nickname for one of JT's right-hand men, essentially. On top of these two disguises, Laura Albert's boyfriend at the time, Jeffrey, would disguise as Aster. That was his stage name. Speedy and Aster were this rock star couple from this band that went by Thistle, and the whole background they had background story they had concocted was that they had taken JT under their wing and were kind of raising him as their own. So this entourage would always come out to these events. You wouldn't get JT alone ever. It was the entourage. Then suddenly everything unraveled and people realized that none of them were JT. It wasn't even a case of which one of you is the real JT, but this was levels of deception where JT was none of them. To better understand what went on here, let's back up and look at each character that was a part of this saga. First of all, there is Laura Albert, a.k.a. Speedy, a.k.a. Emily, a.k.a. JT. 
When Laura was growing up, she had actually already gotten into the habit of creating fake personas and spinning these elaborate lies. She would spend hours on the phone calling child protective hotlines and making up these elaborate backstories about children who had gone through trauma. She also had some lighter fabrications that she went with. For example, it took her four months into a relationship with one boyfriend before she revealed that her British accent had been fake those past four months. The JT persona first made itself known by reaching out to someone named Dennis Cooper in 1994, and JT would actually fax stories to Dennis Cooper to get some feedback from him. And that led to, long story short, Ira Silverberg eventually became JT's manager. Dennis Cooper extended the contacts from person to person, and people just continued to spread the word about JT's work and provide JT feedback. And in addition to feedback over email or fax, there were lawn phone calls that paralleled the ones that Laura used to make when she was younger. She would be talking about situations as if they had happened to her in that southern accent in a quiet voice, so everyone on the phone thought they were speaking to this 15-year-old boy. And the relationships that this JT persona formed with these authors was incredibly intimate. Part of that was because there was the ability to kind of cover for some of the comments that may have crossed the line because JT had endured a traumatic childhood and in general had grown up really having a hard time understanding the concept of boundaries in relationships with older people. But part of it was also because authors just took um, this, they had these maternal paternal instincts towards JT and wanted to help see his potential through and be there for him when he had not seemed to have parents who had been there for him in the past. So authors really took hours and hours on the phone with JT, not just giving advice on writing, but these relationships became about so much more where they talked about very deep stuff. And often these authors felt very compelled to stay on the phone with JT for a long, long time because JT would say things that were quite concerning to adults, which seemed to be hinting at at suicidal thoughts or just in general scary self-harm related thoughts that they were they felt like they needed to walk him off of the ledge metaphorically over the phone, and they didn't never felt like they could hang up first and feel content like JT's going to be okay today. There was a lot of emotion that went into these conversations and hours built into creating this idea in their heads of who they were speaking to on the phone. Dennis commented later on after all of this was revealed, talking about what it was like to talk to JT for the first time, saying, quote, when I first knew him, he was 15 and living on the streets. He carried a fax machine wherever he went, and he would plug it into weird places and fax me all the time. For years, I thought he might die any minute. I was always trying to encourage him to write because I didn't know what else to do. And I think people like Mary did the same thing. He was referring to Mary Gateskill there, who took also took an interest as JT in both an author and a person, saying, quote, He's one of the smartest people I've ever talked to in my life. It's an uncanny sort of intelligence, like he can read people without meeting them. I sometimes get this image of him as a glistening gossamer net, moving in response to sound, thought, feeling, any kind of stimulus imaginable. JT, when interviewed once about this relationship with Gateskill, said, quote, She's the first woman I'd say I ever fell in love with on sorts of levels, on all sorts of levels. I wouldn't say she's a mom, more like a lover, but a parent for the writing. A lot of people were delicate with me because I was perceived as fragile, and I thought I was actually. 
Next character to discuss is Savannah. And I apologize, I think before I said she was Laura's boyfriend's half-sister. She was actually Laura's half-sister. Laura's boyfriend's sister. Laura and the boyfriend got married. Anyway, so this person, Savannah, dressed up as JT Leroy for the public appearances. In 2008, she released the book Girl, Boy, Girl, How I Became JT Leroy. And in the book, she takes a very interesting tone to how she reflects on the experience not necessarily feeling bad more so feeling like she should be defensive of what happened in a way and basically justifying what she did by saying it was an outlet for her when she became JT was actually therapeutic for her she does not feel so much manipulated by the real JT Laura Albert she is willingly complicit in the plan saying that she really used JT as a way to question her own gender identity and to play around with concepts of masculinity. Albert even thought soon came to think that Savannah had been growing more physically masculine the more she played JT, meaning just she would she would grow more facial hair or shave less or just things like that that seemed like at least according to Laura's account were actually showing that Savannah really became more and more like JT, and it was harder to separate them over time. And once this had snowballed, it, there was no turning back. Another key character here is Asia Argento, who directed and starred in a movie from a JT Leroy book adaptation, The Heart is Deceitful Above All Things. And after she found out what happened, she was so shell-shocked. She had no idea... As for the the appearance, she had been under the impression that JT was a transgender woman, which is a storyline that JT started running with as well over time eventually. That was what they decided would excuse what they felt they had to excuse in terms of the long hair and the outfits and the in general appearance. She thought of herself as a very close friend of JT's and felt so blindsided. She had had long phone conversations with JT, and sometimes JT would refer on those phone calls to wanting to be called Savannah, but then claimed it was not like a slip-up. It was just JT had multiple personalities and wanted sometimes to be called Savannah on the phone by Asia Argento. Laura claims that Asia Argento knew all along what was going on here. She claims that Asia was always in on it and that this is a fake sense of outrage and shock. One more character worth noting here is Dr. Terrence Owens. He is a real doctor. He taught social work at the University of San Francisco and developed a relationship with Laura for many years. There are different stories as to how Dr. Owens stepped into Laura's life. There are some versions of the story that say that Dr. Owens is the one who rescued JT from the streets one day when JT was like 13 or 14. In other versions of the story, one of Laura's alter egos, Emily, was the one to rescue JT from the streets and take JT back to live with Aster and Speedy. There are different versions of what's happening here, but Dr. Owens stepped into the picture years before JT really took off, it sounds like. And his level of knowledge, or lack thereof, of the whole scheme is a bit murky still. How much he truly knew. He really defends what happened here by saying he advised Laura to create something to write with, write through, an avatar. They, they keep using the word avatar when describing who JT was for her. And that when she would have these these therapy sessions with Dr. Owens, she needed some way to step outside of herself in order to truly unpack trauma that she had boxed into herself over time and kept hidden away. And what allowed her to unbox that trauma was 
pretending to be somebody else. And so she would write from a perspective of a 15-year-old male. She would start writing with the male voice when she was younger. So this was a long-term habit of hers before JT even existed. And their relationship did not exist only through phone and email correspondence. Albert actually used to go to Dr. Owens's lectures at the university where he taught sometimes just to wait and then when he was ready after class she would ask for some in-person feedback on what she was working on. And to this day Laura Albert still has a relationship with Dr. Owens which she describes as sacred. There's also one interesting element that may not mean anything, but it's worth noting, is that Dr. Owens works at an adolescent psychiatric inpatient program at St. Mary's Macaulay Institute, and Laura has financially contributed to that institute before. The extent of that contribution and the purpose of it is not clear, but it is an interesting thing to know nonetheless. There were a lot of close calls where this scheme was almost uncovered but wasn't quite yet. For example, there was a time where Savannah, when making an appearance as JT once, said that he was from North Virginia, as opposed to the real story which said that he was from West Virginia. But people either thought that was a slip of the tongue, or just JT being classic JT and joking around, or just being being intentionally throwing people off just to get keep their attention. They found that to just be a habit of some authors. There were also times where in public this entourage would all duck and hide when they saw someone they knew in public and were worried that someone would look way too closely at Savannah and see what was up. They also got into the habit when they took international trips for book promo to instantly rip off all the luggage tags on their stuff the second that they grabbed their bags at the airport. They used fake IDs to get around, although they had to use real passports to travel internationally, but they found a way to keep the JT disguise up all the time. Second of all, before Savannah even stepped into the picture, Laura found ways to get the JT persona out there as people started asking questions, especially as JT's fame rose, so too did the requests from media to include new photos of JT to go with their stories about him. But at one time, Laura paid this young boy she saw, she was just looking around for a boy who matched the description she had of JT, and found one, so she paid this boy $50 to pretend to be JT for a few minutes, when Mary Gateskill wanted to meet in person for the first time. So Mary waited in this restaurant, and when Laura found this boy, she gave him $50 and a bag full of gifts to give Mary. And she said, just run in there, I'll pay $50, just run in there, mutter under your breath, hi, I'm Terminator. That's the T in the JT Terminator. Uh, he wrote under the name Terminator sometimes. Anyway, so she was like, just mutter, hey, I'm Terminator, drop the bag of gifts and run out of there looking like shy and head low and everything. That's exactly what he did, and so their meeting lasted less than a minute, and that was it. They paid a young boy to pose for one of JT's book covers, and his identity to this day remains unclear. They also once paid a young girl to pose as JT on the street of pictures that they could include in media stories, so they found ways to pay people even before Savannah officially became the go-to person to look to for the physical appearances of JT. Third variable that was a little interesting how they pulled this off here that was a little suspect is the financial aspect. Some paychecks used to go to this alleged cousin of JT who went by Joanne Albert, which of course with the Albert last name you know that it's someone related to Laura Albert they claim was JT's cousin, but Joanne is actually Laura's sister. So some paychecks were signed to her. Some paychecks also went to Underdog Inc. 
in Carson City, Nevada. And the president of Underdog Inc. there is Laura's mom, Carolyn. As for the rest of her finances, they were controlled at least somewhat by Ira Silverberg, one of her earliest mentors and agents, essentially. He held on to it and kept control of JT's finances. When asked for more specifics about this arrangement, he told reporters, quote, none of your business. So JT claimed to have this cousin and didn't really address the Underdog Inc. payments. So what about the rest of JT's friends and family? Well, JT said that his mom and grandma had died, also said that his biological dad was a famous theology writer but refused to say anything more about him, not even his name. JT would have refused to disclose any information, including names of other relatives. Someone did claim to be JT's uncle during one phone call with a reporter, but during that phone call, the uncle just said that he lives in the Midwest and that he worked for the U.S. government in a secret capacity and therefore did not want to say any more to disclose anything that may be confidential. Laura's actual mom, Carolyn, actually has this info online about herself. She's a professional theater critic, so for a living, she critics, she critiques performances and how much people have put on an act, which I found very interesting. Carolyn Albert also describes her daughter as, quote, a writer in California, and that's, that's as much detail as she provides for her daughter. As for friends and companions, JT only mentions those famous celebrities. It's as if life prior to 1994 did not exist anymore. It was wiped off the books for JT, and it was almost as if his life had started with just his introduction into the world of the rich and famous. As for the living situation, JT claimed, after being homeless for a while, to have moved in and able to live with this band, Thistle, with Speedy and Astor being the members of the band. And they claimed that JT also wrote songs for that band. An ex-friend of Savannah and Jeffrey's, though, Stephen O'Connor, told reporters he had been aware that Laura wrote the books the whole time, and he had thought that the JT persona was a gag to generate publicity for the band, not even for her writing, but for the band Thistle. He also told reporters that he had never seen a young boy living with them like they claimed, it should be noted, though, that Stephen O'Connor is not exactly a reliable source here. Not only has he engaged in heavy drug use in the past that may have altered his memories of this time in his life, but also he is an ex-friend of the family. So not necessarily he has a hidden agenda, but it's just notable that he's not going to be entirely impartial here. The story was really that JT had moved in with them in, 90, in 1997, but friends of the family of Speedy and Aster, a.k.a. Jeffrey and Laura, had not heard about JT until 2000, so the timeline didn't really match up. One man who was friends with this couple since 1992 told reporters that he was shocked to learn that JT and Laura were the same person. He had never known anything about the double life, so maybe he had heard of JT the author but didn't know there was a connection to Laura at all. And he had never heard about a kid moving into the house with them. One more thing about this relationship to the band Thistle that didn't add up is that JT claims in interviews to have played a pivotal role in the creation of the band Thistle and having been like an original songwriter for them. People re realized that Thistle was just a rebrand, that this same couple had been under a different name before called Daddy Don't Go well before JT entered the picture. So Daddy Don't Go rebranded into Thistle, and that's when suddenly JT had apparently been there for the whole journey of the band. So the family situation raised questions, the financial situation raised questions, 
And then further red flags seemed to pop up when different editors and reporters had tried to meet JT in person. One editor was traveling to San Francisco where Laura actually did live and JT allegedly lived at this point. And so this editor said, I'm going, I'm going to be in town in San Francisco. Can we meet up in person? So they made plans to meet up in Washington Square Park, but JT never showed up. On another occasion, a different editor met JT for real in San Francisco in 2002, several years into their working relationship. And JT, aka Savannah, did show up in disguise and everything but would not leave the car and just stayed and talked through the window and allowed Emily, one of Laura's personas who was there at the time, talk instead. Dennis Cooper only met JT in person once, and it was through Speedy's introduction, so Speedy was the one who kind of allowed that meeting to take place. Karen Rinaldi, who used to be an editor of JT's when JT wrote for a magazine publication, went to see JT in person once and brought groceries with her, And when she showed up, Jeffrey answered the door. He did go to the door and grab the groceries from her, but he refused and said JT didn't want to see her and closed the door, and that was that. So he just took the groceries and left. One of JT's assistants, Nancy Murdoch, was always so defensive and protective over JT and claimed that any reporter who smelled something fishy about JT was just jealous of JT's success as an author. And the first time Nancy met Speedy slash Laura... She just thought it was funny that JT and Laura seemed to have such similar uh, phrases they used and similar mannerisms and stuff. She just thought that was very funny and didn't really suspect anything suspicious about that. The author of Jane, Joshua Lyon, he attended a red carpet event that JT was also at and started a conversation that made it very clear very quickly JT had no idea who he was, despite extensive email conversations they had been having in the days leading up to this event. He'd even helped out uh, or collaborated with JT on a manuscript at one point, and so for JT, which was Savannah at the time in disguise, to look very confused and have no idea who he was, was odd for him. Joshua called JT twice, The first time he hung up convinced that he had been talking to a woman faking a southern accent. He hadn't been fooled by that. And the second time, maybe they were realizing that the accent had not worked on him before because suddenly this person who decided to go by the name Laura, for real, was going to answer all of JT's questions for him during their next phone call. So two investigative reports came together in the 2000s. One was from the New York Times with reporting done by Warren St. John, who interviewed JT over the phone in 2004. JT slash Laura was notified about the story before its release, and Albert remembers her reaction in this way. Quote, I said, I don't know what you're talking about. I wasn't ready to admit anything. I published everything as fiction. JT was protection. He was a veil upon veil, a filter. I never saw it as a hoax. It was bizarre when the articles came out to read these impressions of what we were doing. I was holding on for dear life. We're going to revisit that quote in a little bit, but just to get you in the headspace of where Laura was when this scheme started unraveling, she really was quite defensive of what she had done and viewed it as not anything wrong. The second big investigative report on J.T. Leroy was released in New York Magazine by Joshua Lyon, who found himself in a unique position to cover this story because he had lived on and had close friends around Polk Street in San Francisco, which is where J.T. claimed to have lived on the streets. 
He had lived there until, Joshua had lived there until 1993. In 1995 to 1996, he had been teaching homeless kids creative writing lessons there. So he had been in contact with the folks down there for a while and wondered why had I never heard of or seen anything about JT when JT claimed to have lived there. So he contacted residents of Polk Street who had been there for a long time. He also showed these residents pictures of JT and described what he was like to them, and no one had any memories of this person ever being there. He talked to someone who called himself a former hustler, who was a, quote, fixture on the streets and knew everybody in the neighborhood. This hustler had no memory of someone who went by the nickname Terminator. Then Joshua looked into JT's claim that he was born on Halloween in 1980 in West Virginia. He found no publicly accessible record of that name and date and time and everything matching up. He also then proceeded to look at Dennis Cooper's archives at NYU to find contact information that JT had used previously, which led him to JT to Dennis Cooper's phone records and seeing that JT had called and faxed Dennis Cooper under the name Paul. And long story short, he traced that name back and to and realized it was referring to someone who exists, Paul Filotico. This investigator tracked down Paul. Paul said he had never heard of Leroy, but he did know Laura Albert. He knew who she was dating, and he knew that she was a member of the band Daddy Don't Go. He didn't know anything further about that it had rebranded as Thistle, and he did not know there was a connection to the author J.T. Leroy. Paul said he met Laura initially through this internet chat room, and then they met in real life after he moved from Phoenix to San Francisco in 96. He had grown quite close to Laura and her boyfriend at the time. He remembers Laura, as you may have guessed, as someone who liked to lie, who used a lot of aliases for her writing over time, she would always change up who she wrote as in different ways. She would even answer the phone in different accents at different times. He also remembers her having a very dark mind and telling dark stories and just not exactly being someone who clearly had a happy-go-lucky childhood. Paul also helped this reporter find an answer to the question, where does the nickname Terminator come from? Because Laura apparently used to be friends with a 16-year-old homeless boy from that street, and that boy went by the nickname of Terminator. Laura had asked Paul to set up his answering machine, actually, so that Terminator could receive messages on it. So the real-life Terminator, Laura asked Paul to find a way to keep them in touch with each other. It's unclear if that was for character development or if that was just a genuine longing to have that relationship or what, but it was interesting because... Uh, allegedly Terminator was homeless and therefore couldn't contact Laura regularly, so Laura wanted to make sure he found a way to hear her messages on an answering machine, so she roped her friend Paul into this. Yet even more light started being shined on the situation the more that was uncovered by Joshua. He had attended this live reading event for JT Leroy and realized, oh, guess who the special musical guest is tonight? Thistle. At that same event, JT, which was Savannah, rushed from the taxi cab where, that she had arrived in all the way up into this upper-level balcony and just watched the entire evening unfold from that top balcony and tried to stay, you know, kind of out of sight, out of mind. So the reporter, when reaching out to Laura as JT, was accused of lacking, quote, purity of intent in his reporting. JT claimed that no explanation was owed to this reporter. Joshua got the impression that 
Albert was definitely shielded by Dr. Owens and this one other person who was one of the long-term people JT had had phone conversations with. He felt like several people were responsible for shielding JT from tough questions, for giving and leaking information to JT slash Laura early just to prepare for the phone interviews and to give them a heads up. And they really fielded tough questions. They were just basically buffers for JT slash Laura is how he came to think of it. JT did not seem to have appreciated the line of questioning received on the first phone call between them, because when Joshua called for the second interview, JT simply said he'd done some research and he realized that this reporter was also an author who was less successful, and so he basically just accused Joshua of being jealous of his writing and called him an unfair reporter that had to sell his less popular book, quote, for a nickel on Amazon.com. Joshua came away from those conversations believing that he'd totally been talking to Laura in a fake southern accent the whole time. There is a huge key quote from this piece that he wrote reflecting on what he had uncovered and not uncovered that I just think sums up so much. So here goes. Quote, The rumors I'm talking about, I said to JT, would mean that I'm actually speaking to Speedy, and I find that fascinating. JT wouldn't confirm or deny it, although as we spoke for more than an hour, it felt to me that I was speaking to Laura, and it felt like both of us knew that, and that this was a novel and disturbing experience for us both. Whoever was on the other end of the phone was intelligent and articulate. JT espoused values I agreed with, and effectively made me question my own investment in writing this story. She slash he spoke about metaphorical truth, about purity of intent, and of a commitment to writing. I heard Jeffrey in the background telling whomever was on the phone that they had to leave for an appointment, but JT kept talking. She slash he seemed to be both justifying the performance and asking not to be exposed. She slash he discussed the rumors she slash he had spread about fathering Asia Argento's baby and how angry that had made some fans. But it was a metaphorical truth, she slash he said, in terms of the movie Argento made of his book, and JT wondered, where was the harm? Unquote. Which really sums up a lot of how Laura reacted when the revelations really started to come out about the situation. So going back to the New York Times quote that I had said earlier needed a lot of unpacking, let's talk about that quote sentence by sentence now with that other context. So first, Laura said, I said, I don't know what you're talking about. I wasn't ready to admit anything. So argument one is that she just wasn't ready and she talked about in these interviews how JT was her shield to talk about tough issues in her past. And she didn't feel comfortable being herself as a writer, so she thought she could be more successful as a writer if she took on a seemingly uh, easier to sympathize with uh, young boy. I I published everything as fiction. So she she did include the word fiction on her books, but it was small, it was not front and center, and it was totally overlooked a lot of the time. And really, JT did not dispute the narrative publicly that the his that his books were based on his life experiences. He didn't dispute that narrative that had been with him for a decade or so. And so for him now to claim, well, I always said it was fiction is a little odd, but that's what she says, that she wasn't deceitful in that way. She also said... JT was protection. He was a veil upon veil, a filter. I never saw it as a hoax. 
She constantly does that in interviews, defending what she did, saying that she refers to it as her avatar. And she doesn't view it as a con or a hoax or anything like that. Then she goes on to say it was bizarre when these articles came out to read these interpretations of what we were doing. And then she says, I was holding on for dear life. So she really was afraid to let go of the JTB persona this time. She had been in too deep, and at some just human level that is understandable because imagine that you've built up so much admiration and then you realize that all of the fame and admiration you got was not yours. It was for JT. It was for someone you were not. So what happens if you take away that persona? Is anyone still there for you? Which is what she feared. But then she seemed to be quite relieved by the fact that the truth had come out, and she calls this event the reveal, or the great reveal, of her life. But people were very outraged. Fans felt lied to and betrayed. They felt very manipulated emotionally, financially. They felt very exploited because of the emotional manipulation on the long phone calls where she shared very dark thoughts. They felt manipulated in terms of the time and resources they took into promoting this young boy's work and helping his career blossom to give him a bright future. They just felt very lied to. They also helped skyrocket the speed of her author success as success as an author because they gave her connections and helped network at a rapid pace. She also did take material things from people because every year she would get birthday gifts from fans and admirers especially because JT went with the narrative that he had never gotten a chance to celebrate his birthday. So people felt bad and they brought him gifts every year. Ira Silverberg, when he found out, what he was particularly upset about is the aspect of the fake HIV diagnosis that JT was running with. He said, quote, This was such a beautiful story of someone who'd come from nothing, who'd been abused, who was dealing with HIV. You just wanted this person to be well, and I think we really got sucked in. The person was very much a part of that, and this attempt to kind of separate the importance of Leroy's backstory out that she's made is just BS as far as I'm concerned. She's not taking responsibility, nor has she apologized. My guess is the work's not going to live on. The work was very much about the person who wrote it. Interestingly, he had been of a different mind previously, ignoring potential red flags and telling reporters, quote, if it is all a big hustle, it's a great hustle, and I applaud it. If it's true, it's as Warholian as it gets, referring to Andy Warhol and Alter, Alter Ego's other personas sent out into the world. Some more reactions from those close to Laura slash JT. Dennis Cooper said, quote, I know how much this whole JT thing means to some kids. He's their idol. What makes me angry is they used this, played the whole abuse thing. Kids who really are abused, how shocked they'll be. Cooper had had suspicions raised prior to all of the revelations coming to light, because when he did meet JT in person for the first time, something did seem off. JT did not seem like the person he had grown to know over the phone, but he had kind of ignored those red flags because he really just wanted it to be true. This story of a rags-to-riches story of someone coping with an HIV diagnosis publicly and of relating to kids who didn't see a role model in their lives, someone who withstood the odds in their life, the kids needed that to look up to and to feel like their hero was not the hero that they thought he was. Dennis Cooper just seemed to feel very um, remorseful for those, those kids who had been uh, betrayed in this way. One of the authors who struck up a relationship with JT, once hearing the truth, Joel Rose said, quote, I loved him in my own way. I always will, even if it is some sick figment of Laura's imagination. 
I still loved that person who presented himself to me in that light. I have deep mourning for someone who never existed. As for how Savannah reacted to all of this, she seemed to be a bit conflicted. She seemed to enjoy, though, her time in the spotlight. And at least subconsciously, to some extent, I'm sure she was the kind of person who enjoyed her time in the spotlight just because she agreed to this. And she kept agreeing to it to meet the celebrities who were fans of hers and to go to book signings and stuff and have interviews. So agreeing to that naturally shows that she's willing to accept all the attention at the least. And she seemed to like that. And after the hoax was... The, the veil was undone from this hoax, she still wanted to live that life, really, and she would go out and party with Laura when all the truth was out, and they still looked like they were having the time of their life. It wasn't like she suddenly felt the need to be ashamed and hide herself from public life. Some famous friends, though, of JT were not disillusioned at all by what had happened. In fact, Smashing Pumpkins lead singer Billy Corgan wrote the foreword to a reissue of the JT book Sarah, and in the foreword, Billy says, quote, Mark my words, the Terminator is as real as you or I, and that is why what few precious pages we have from his hand through hers ring like sonnets and psalms, and of old gods that took form in the vanished age. Truth is truth, and love is love. An interesting uh, choice of words from him. If anything, this identity revelation actually improved Laura Albert's career chances because people really wanted to work with her and they realized they could now because they could work with an adult on adult content. So David Milch actually met Albert on set of the HBO show Deadwood in 2005 and after learning that she was Leroy, that's when his ears perked up and he asked her to be a writer for the show. And so that continued to happen and Laura continued to get writing opportunities because people knew that they could bank on bank on someone with such an elaborate backstory. A particular subset of JT's fans who were stunned by this news the most were the members of the LGBTQ plus community. They'd felt so stunned because they saw JT as providing them visibility. JT was a person to provide visibility to often overlooked groups in society. People who don't want to follow the gender binary, people who identify as transgender or just otherwise feel like their sex and gender do not align in the way that that is socially acceptable and that they want to be more masculine or more feminine in a way that would draw backlash. And so J seeing JT defy gender norms was a sign of hope for them. They found JT so relatable and someone that they could finally look up to in the public eye and reson resonated with them. One of Laura's former interns, Jasmine, is one of those people who really resonated with the story in a certain way and always will, saying, quote, I fell in love with Sarah, referring to the book Sarah. It changed my life. I was given the courage to heal. When I found Sarah, I felt like it was the first time something really spoke to me. And that's how a lot of fans really felt about the writing, that JT was just really touched them with the writing. And they believe that the writing stands on its own regardless of who wrote it. And it means a lot to them no matter what. I think you can already tell kind of where I stand on this, but I will go more into that as well as how she literally went on trial for this after the break. Before expressing overtly where I stand on this whole debate about how much JT's work stands up, despite that the persona behind it was fake, how much that truly matters, before I give my total complete opinion on that, here are the different ways that Laura has defended herself in interviews over time. 
The first one out of five main ways is that JT was a defense mechanism, allowing her to really tap into her psyche and unpack past traumas in her life. She insists that it's just something her therapist recommended as an exercise, and of course it just kind of spiraled out of control, but it was a headspace, a separate headspace she needed in order to heal from past trauma, and that manifested in the form of someone who was very unlike her, someone half her age, who was a boy who lived in West Virginia as opposed to Brooklyn, New York. She just wanted to separate herself from someone else, yet still find common threads in their stories. Two, she claims that her situation is kind of like, she, what she compares it to often is Andy Warhol's factory. She says her antics should be called a lifestyle, not a hoax. She's compared herself to David Bowie and other celebrities who take on a different persona on stage. And she explains it like, well, there are a lot of celebrities who do this. You know, they have an alter ego in certain parts of their famous life. And then other times their mask is off and they're just themselves. And they intentionally create a different public persona than their private one. And she insists that being an author includes that that ability to do that as well is warranted. Albert was very aware of how much people idolized JT, saying in one interview, quote, People would line up all day to see him. He'd get the rock star treatment. They had to get us security guards because all these people just wanted to touch him. I remember once we went to Sweden to do a reading, and people were bowing down and kneeling before JT. It happened spontaneously, and it was beautiful. And I was there standing on the side, asking people what brought them. They would always talk about the books. I could get what I wanted, connecting with others, without having to be the focus of the attention. Three, she calls this revelation the reveal, and she describes it as kind of like her version of an art exhibit of sorts. She said, quote, art should confuse, and she often said things like that, that this was all kind of an artistic act, this was all part of the act, this was all this elaborate performance art, essentially. She called her situation, quote, a Von Trapp kind of family, saying, quote, we are a family and we create together in many, many ways, and that is our right. I reserve the right to grow and change my identity. Later on, she said, maybe I'm Aster and Speedy, or maybe I'm an amalgam of the universal unconscious. So she really likes to play around with identity and views that as just nothing harmful that's just growing up, and artists do that all the time. She argues that no one's really their true self when they're artistic or when they're online or in some other media form. That's not the real them who they put on media in any form. So she argues, what's the difference when I do it? Four, she insists that her intent matters and she had no ill intent. Quote, Since the reveal, I've heard from more people who understand the need to hide, how it freed my voice to have someone who wasn't me. They recognized the f- that felt authenticity of my fiction, the emotional truths. In another quote, she said, We'd talk about it sometimes, but we knew our intent was not malicious, so we didn't feel ashamed. We asked ourselves, are we making anyone do something they don't want to do? Are we being of service? Are we making people feel good and spreading love? We felt that we were. People responded with great love and great happiness to JT and to his writing. It wasn't like we were spreading some dark thing. Number five, the main takeaway I get from Laura's arguments is that she's kind of in awe over the fact people fell for this at all. In a way, she's not really so much sympathetic for the victims as kind of getting a kick out of this whole thing. And taking it quite lightly, according to Vice, when asked if she regretted anything about this scheme, she just started singing My Way by Frank Sinatra. The lyrics of that song include regrets, I've had a few, but then again, too few to mention. Also in Vice, she said, quote, a few weeks before, this is actually the uh, reporter of the piece said, quote, a few weeks before our interview, she direct messaged me on Twitter to ask me to leave an Amazon review on the, Le- on the Leroy book. 
At the end of our conversation, she grabbed my copy of Harold's End, Leroy's third book, and signed it, even after I told her I would prefer she didn't. Laura did have a difficult childhood. She did suffer abuse. She was homeless for a time being. Her parents had divorced. She lived in a group home for a while. So she definitely had dark things about her past to write about, and it wasn't all fabricated experiences. But there were other parts of her dark past that were entirely fabricated, like being pimped out by her parent or having an HIV diagnosis. And those aspects were really drawing a lot of criticism for the fact that she claimed to be a part of communities on their struggles and she was not. Laura's big statement summarizing her thoughts about this, quote, All I can say is I am sorry if people are disappointed or offended. If knowing that I'm 15 years older than Jeremy devalues the work, then I'm sorry they feel that way. Everything you need to know about me is in my books, in ways I don't even understand. I think some people take it for granted to be acknowledged and not overlooked. My experience was to be completely ignored and disregarded and disdained. That's what I write about. One thing people often comment to me about the characters in J.T. Leroy's books is that they strive for goodness, even in a world where all their experience contradicts this. I feel that this desire is essential to my story as well. When I would reach a point where I wanted to commit suicide, something gave me hope. This hope is in the books too. And of course, the ultimate hope is that I can reveal myself and you won't go away. So my honest thoughts on this. First of all, I understand and respect the need to have a different celebrity persona, like with David Bowie and Beyonce has that with Sasha Fierce. When musicians do that, I get it, and I think it's actually quite cool and part of their right as a musician to creatively express themselves by putting on an onstage persona. However, I don't think that is the right comparison for this situation because in those situations, we always knew... We knew David Bowie was Ziggy Stardust. We knew Beyonce was Sasha Fierce. It was part of the act. Part of the act was stepping outside of the act, ironically. Whereas here, we didn't even know we were in on the act, or not in on the act. We didn't know what was an act and what wasn't part of the act. I'd like to revisit that quote she said about what she's doing and how she asked herself and why she doesn't feel regrets for what she did because of these questions she asked herself. First of all, she says, uh, she talked to Savannah about this, saying, are we making anything, uh, or are we making anyone do something they don't want to do? Actually, yes, they were, I would argue, because they made authors talk this allegedly 15-year-old young boy down from the brink of suicide. They made, they placed a lot of emotional labor on the people who collaborated with JT, the author. They were actually making people do things they probably didn't want to do if the circumstances had been different. They they made people invest time and resources into something that, had they known it was fake, they would not have gone through with it. Then she asked herself, are we being of service? Which is debatable because they were outlets for promoting this work, which could have really resonated with and touched people in meaningful ways that were cathartic to them. But the ways they went about it, I don't think the end justifies the means as much as they insist it does. They also asked, are we making people feel good and spreading love? They were. They also were doing the complete opposite. And again, it's it's an end justifies the means debate. But they said they felt like that's what they were doing with the best intention. It's just the visibility of this character and their story. But there are a couple of reasons why I 
really cannot get behind what she did at all and it really does feel like such a complete betrayal and I don't think the book should be celebrated as much now but that is the biggest room for debate really is how much we should celebrate and appreciate the great writing of those books knowing the author's backstory and the lies that built up her career but what to keep in mind are a few things first of all with her official apology of sorts I always have an issue when an apology has the word if, when she says, I'm sorry if people are disappointed or offended. And I know that's just a little detail, but to me that always sticks out in an apology. If they say, I'm sorry to those I've hurt versus I'm sorry if anyone was hurt. It really carries a lot of different um, implications depending on the word choice. Words really matter here when you're talking about an apology on such a public scale. Second of all, I always find most convincing an argument that is solid and constant and has a lot of evidence. Whereas Laura's defenses are less persuadable to me because they are not constant in a way that feels like it makes sense. Because she has about five different arguments and they seem to contradict each other. And so that just raises red flags for me about how much she the defense should be accepted as a good one because first of all she claims it's bizarre that anyone ever fell for this and finds it kind of funny that they did then she claims that she never meant to trick anyone and thought everyone was kind of in on it a bit more than they let on then she claims that what she was doing was not any persona that would cause anyone harm but then by saying that she can't believe they fell for it she indicates she's aware of the fallout of what she did so there just seem to be contradictory defenses of herself and she switches up her defenses of it very quickly within the same response she always does that in interviews where she'll start by saying i meant no my intentions were good then she goes on to say what impact she wanted to have and why she needed this avatar then she goes on to say why the media is out to get her then she goes on to say why uh, the, her books deserve to get the same attention as others. Then she compares herself to other celebrity alter egos. It just feels like a lot of defensiveness thrown at the listener at once, and it just does not come across as persuasive to me, but rather just all too defensive and not, not something I can get behind. If Laura had used this avatar and been upfront about it, I would feel totally differently. Or even if she had used this avatar but been more overt about the fact that it was fiction writing and not allowed everyone to believe that it was a true story, if she had not let that that lie unravel so, for so long, if she had really nipped this in the bud when people started getting misconceptions about about JT, I would feel a lot differently. But she let this escalate. And she needs to take responsibility for that, which she doesn't seem to want to do. It's also important to keep in mind that she really leaned on things. Some of these things are understandable. If she had created just an alter ego to vent about and share her experiences with homelessness, for example, she has every right to do that. She has that lived experience. That's a therapeutic tool for her go-ahead. Those parts of the story I'm not upset with. What is upsetting is that she tried to tell stories that were not hers to tell, and her versions of alleged truths were not even, were given to way more credibility and love and attention than the stories of people who actually suffered those things. She claims that she never used the HIV storyline as just to market books, but Others disagree and say those were kind of a central tenant to part of the story, and so for her claiming that 
really was not used to sell more books is a bit questionable, especially given the fact that she has elaborated extensively about this aspect of JT's life in interviews, saying things like this quote, I always felt like JT was a mutation, a shared lun, and for me to become normal, I'd have to breathe on my own. Originally, I felt that he might die of AIDS, but that's not in any of the books. I didn't deny the rumors, but I never made any statement intended to further JT's popularity by claiming he had AIDS. I remember one day ten years ago, I, I thought he will die this weekend. I went into deep mourning, I was physically sick, but JT didn't want to die, and I couldn't let him die. I felt that if he died, I would die. She talks about that a lot in very dramatic terms, which she seems to really like to do. But yet she brings up the fact that this character could die at any moment as a way that feels like she's weaponizing it. Like, you're going to hurt this poor boy and make me kill him off as a character? And that feels quite threatening, frankly. Another thing about why I struggle to have sympathy for Albert, given all of the harm she caused, is that she focuses so much on intent over impact. And I think impact is just as important, if not more so, than whatever your intent was. Because a lot of hurtful things happen when, and then people say, I'm sorry, that wasn't my intent. Well, let's look at the impact more. And this is something to really keep in mind, especially when it gets taken to court. That's a huge impact on everyone's time and money and resources and, and attention. And Albert went on trial in 2007 for fraud because she had set up a company and signed a contract with the pseudonym J.T. Leroy. She was sued by Antidote International Films because she signed this contract in 2007 under that fake name, which you can't do. That trial led to Albert quitting writing for a while, and the jury allowed the production company to get $116,500 back in compensation. Dr. Owens testified on behalf of Laura during that trial, calling her a very disturbed person, and Albert continued to talk about how without JT she would die. But I, what I want to keep in mind here are a few quotes from the director of the documentary The Cult of JT Leroy. This was one by director Marjorie Sturm that started filming in 2002, and she really felt like she was in a unique position to talk about this story because of her background both in social work and in working with the mentally ill and homeless populations. She felt very uniquely situated also because she had worked with those who had been in the same neighborhood as the one JT claimed to have wrote his books while talking while struggling with his addiction and stuff. The setting of JT's story is allegedly the same setting that she uh, did social work in. And so she tried to make a documentary showing her side, especially because there was a different version of this story told by this other documentary called Author, the JT Leroy story. This one was directed by Jeff Furzeg, and he spent eight days with Lee, with Laura for the movie, looking at all of these, all of her diary entries and stuff, and so his version ended up being a very more empathetic version towards Laura, treated her behavior as really a product of her troubled youth. He, the document, his documentary places a lot of emphasis on society and not Laura, on what society has done wrong that led to this idol worship of someone in the first place, and so he takes a lot of the blame and heat off of Laura. And he didn't give a wide variety of perspectives on this, on this issue either. He focused on Laura's interpretation of events. And when asked about backlash to the whole story and his defense of it, he said, quote, Some people are outraged. Some think it's the greatest thing since sliced cheese. And all of the responses are valid. The film doesn't seek to moralize or judge. 
So that is something to note of. This story has been told in the J.T. Leroy documentary, and now this Cult of J.T. Leroy one by Marjorie Sturm. This one talks about those broader issues as well, like cult of celebrity and the human capacity for evil, but it also dissects more and is more critical of Laura's behavior. And actually, Laura was reached out to at first for comment and a contribution to this documentary from Marjorie, but the offer was kind of rescinded when Laura basically started threatening and harassing the people behind the movie, and so Marjorie went forward saying, why have her hijack more of the spotlight anyway? I guess I don't want her input, but she tried to reach out. A very powerful quote from Sturm that I want to share is, Laura did her best to present a case for her mental illness during the trial over a period of eight days, and the jury quickly concluded that they weren't buying it. However, no one is arguing that Laura is not a disturbed individual. And if people choose to have compassion for her, that is their choice. But it doesn't mitigate responsibility for her actions. I don't believe our compassion for a victimizer should ever outweigh the compassion we have for those they victimized, as it fuels them and allows them to abuse again. Today, Laura does talk about JT in the past tense, views JT's kind of disconnected more so than ever from her. And her story continues to be brought up, though, because it was most recently told in 2017 in a movie starring Laura Dern and Kristen Stewart. This film was based on the girl-boy-girl novel from Savannah's perspective of the story, which paints Savannah in a unique light, too, being not exactly uh, sympathetic and sorry for the deception, but just viewing it as all a fun hoax, an elaborate con of sorts. Sturm does talk in interviews about the larger social cultural forces we need to look at, like the fact that society really does like like certain kinds of stories and may glorify certain stories way too much. And she gets into all that as well, but she also calls out Laura specifically for really being an adult. If there really was a 15-year-old and he had lied about some of his book, that's different than a grown woman lying about her whole backstory. We should judge... She argues we should judge adult behavior at a different level than a child's misbehavior. She also feels like Laura has shown never any empathy towards those she deceived and just kind of laughs at them, thinks they're stupid for falling for it. She says, quote, The line is crossed and problems begin when we market our fiction as nonfiction in order to manipulate and gain sympathy. When we start picking up the phone and pretending to be that fictional character in real time, when our marginalized fictional character asks for resources, time, money, gifts. There are several larger issues here to discuss. One being that our society does have an issue with what some call trauma porn, which is essentially how certain stories do get quite glorified or glamorized, or just when they are given the Hollywood treatment, suddenly they are viewed as... We need to step back and look at why we're so fascinated by such traumatic stories and then why our fascination may be feeding into unhealthy desires to turn into movies and TV shows and the like, really painful experiences and how we turn those into celebrity-filled experiences. Again, it's not about intent. They could have great intentions, but over time, let's look at the impact as well because... When we keep talking about the rags-to-riches stories, that adds to all these narratives about the people who didn't have the same story, and it puts more blame on them for not having a similar success story. As well as the fact that this personal growth situation 
is basically what Laura and Savannah both argue for as well. Savannah describes her experience in her book, and the movie really shows that she kind of views it as like a way for her to personally grow, and this is her hero story, this is her vindication story, this is her time to reclaim her narrative, which is so ironic considering everything. And similarly, now Laura is reclaiming her narrative, writing a memoir in her own voice for once, and really writing as herself now, viewing herself as this person who is now was the victim, and now she's coming out on the other side because she, the victim, became the victor, and now she is reclaiming her name, Laura Albert. And so she basically wrote the sob story for herself to get out of. Another thing to think about is that cult of celebrity concept where you want to believe something sometimes, you want to believe that your idol is just perfect and would never do anything wrong or hurt you, which can lead you to believe things that otherwise you wouldn't. It's also important and raises questions about ethical considerations in writing, as well as who a book is written for. So if it is fiction, who are you writing it for? If it's not your experience, who are you writing for and why? To entertain them? To educate them? What is it? about that. Just something to think about. Mary Gateskill said some unique quotes defending JT in the past, saying, quote, it's occurred to me that the whole thing with Jeremy is a hoax, but I felt that even if it turned out to be a hoax, it's a very enjoyable one, and a hoax that exposes things about people. The confusion between love and art and publicity, a hoax that would be delightful, and if people are made fools of, it would be okay. In fact, it would be useful. She went on to say, quote, one of the first things he ever said to me was, I feel like this is just another hustle, like maybe I'm hustling the literary world. I said, if your writing is good, it doesn't matter. Which brings up a lot of questions about the validity of nonfiction stories and who really decides what a fiction story is. How do we define that? Where does the line get crossed when it's based on a true story versus an untrue story? And that really is a question raised by this whole debacle. Lastly, it brings up questions about how can anyone believe things that seem unbelievable. And especially with this story, like, as I read into it more and looked at pictures and videos and such of the characters, I felt like it looked obvious that this was a disguise and how could anyone believe this was JT. But you have to keep in mind, I think it helps to think about a comparison. So there is a movie, a documentary called The Imposter. Is really gripping. I highly recommend watching it. And the imposter talks about this boy, this man who pretends to be a boy whose parents are looking for him. And the parents have been searching for years and can't find him. And then this guy claims to be their long lost son. And so it's odd at the time because when you see footage and stuff, it's like that guy looked nothing like their son. How did they think that was their son? That looked like a disguise. That was fake. What, what are they doing? How could they not understand that was their own son? Because they did for a while. They accepted he was their long-lost son. They took him in and raised him for a while before real realizing he wasn't their son. So how could that happen? It actually could. Because really think about it. If you were looking for your kid and you heard that your kid was found, how much you want that to be true, it is amazing what the human mind can do when we really want something true. Whether it is or not, just wanting it to be true that really can do a lot to shift how you view a situation, how easily your mind brushes off red flags and just views it as whatever, just a little quirk of that person or maybe just intentional mystery detail about their past that I won't bring up. We find all these ways to defend things that look fishy or just confusing to us when we really want to believe the narrative we're being told. And in general, humans really don't want to feel like they were lied to. 
they like to believe that they, there's this stigma, I guess, with admitting you were wrong. People have a hard time with that. And so people really are ashamed to think they fell for a scheme, but it actually is easier than you think to be catfished in some other issue that in hindsight, it looks like, why did I fall for that? But anyone can, and it's not a sign of not being intelligent when you do fall for it. But people do, and it's important to keep that in mind. So imagine if you were someone struggling with HIV or homelessness, or in general, you felt like confused about your gender identity or just didn't know how to identify and how you wanted to represent yourself to the world. If you needed a role model for you who was finding their own path too and on this journey with you, and you found out that person was never on that journey with you because that person didn't exist, that I would feel very defensive and like, that's not true, that can't be true, there's no way that's true because that would be so devastating. So that's important to keep in mind is that it's very easy to get swept up in narratives that we would love to see. And sometimes we need to step back and realize that's just not happening no matter how much we try to force it and that the truth will come out. One last thing to leave you with is just the thought that Laura Albert seems to be in a relatively good place in her career and life right now. She has a young son who she seems to love raising. She writes under her own name now. She's written four scripts on shows. She has a career still and she's doing quite well, relatively speaking, in her life. So that is something to really think about too and, and question how she got there into that comfortable place career-wise and that all the harm she's left in the wake of authors and all the damaged reputations they have now for falling for that scheme and then getting shamed for falling for it and not trusted because of they fell for it. They may be struggling more in their careers now, but she is fine. And so that is something worth con- thinking about. It also is important to keep in mind how much some people want to help out a community but then if they falsely claim to be in that community then they just do more harm because they misrepresent and add to the stereotypes of that community that they thought they fully understood but if they if they don't live it they don't as much as they think they do i just would be much more forgiving of what laura did if she had not let it go so far and hurt so many people along the way, but some people insist that her writing is still so good it doesn't matter, which brings up a lot of interesting questions that we're going to talk about in future episodes of this betrayal series of fan stories as well, because how much does it matter? Sometimes, in like in this case, I would argue it matters a lot how much is truthful and how much is a lie, but in other cases... What's the harm of certain people claiming ownership over other things? Is it really that big of a deal? Can you still love their work even if you find out someone else actually was behind it? How much can the work stand on its own apart from the person behind it? Those are questions we're going to discuss further and contemplate over and really think about in the next few episodes of Betrayals, which will be in the coming weeks. So stay tuned for those. In the meantime, thank you for listening, and I will see you next week for a new installment.